Hello, and welcome to an all-new episode of Close Talking. I am your co-host, Jack Rossiter-Mumley. And I am your other co-host, Connor McNamara-Strat. And this week, we come to you again with another great poem. It is Abandoned Farmhouse by Ted Kuzer. And as has become our ritual, before we delve deep into that poem, reading it, talking about it, and then reading it again, we have our plea, which is that we would love it. Absolutely love it, both Connor and I. Um, If you would hop over, if you haven't already, to the iTunes, Apple Podcasts situation and leave us a rating and a review because that is the best way to help us engage with algorithms, convince them that we are important enough to merit getting uh, featured. And yeah, ratings and reviews really help the show find new listeners. They are absolutely the best way to do that. And we're always excited when new people listen to the show. So every day I come to the algorithm, the algorithm said, what have you got to offer me? I say, I got 10 ratings. The algorithm says, come to me tomorrow with 15. And you know what? I haven't come to the algorithm in weeks. And the algorithm requires a regular, a regular tribute. So we're, we're skating on thin ice now. It's, Um, it's checking in constantly. Yeah. It's like with just mechanized metronomic regularity, algorithmical. It's just like, hello, it's 8.57. This is my check-in time and I am the algorithm. Where are my reviews? And we're like, don't worry, it's okay, we'll get them. So anyway, rating and review over on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, as it's now called, would be fantastic and would help us stay in the good graces of the algorithm. To business, the business of poetry. Today, we're talking about this doozy from the koozie, Ted Kuzer. Oh, Yeah, uh, that's, sorry, I shouldn't bandy about that. uh, That's his preferred nickname. Uh, He doesn't want anybody (laughs) to know that. So yeah, Ted Kuzer, he was born in Iowa and moved to Nebraska in uh, in his 20s, I guess, in 1963. And he has lived there ever since. Nebraska is a big part of his poetic output. He finds great uh, things to say about the experience of existing in Nebraska, and he has a lot of very cool things to say about the Sandhills of Nebraska. Brief personal note, the only time I have been bored in a car is when my dad and I were driving through the Sandhills of Nebraska. Uh, The poetry of them escaped me at that time. Perhaps I shall revisit them and find it. I, I I know not if that shall transpire. Um, But Ted Kuzer sure makes me want to go back when I read what he has to say about those sandhills. It is kind of cool in a very desolate way. Cause like you, you drive along and there's like towns of five people every, you know, 600 miles. Nebraska is the longest state in the history of existence. It's like a 10,000 mile long state (laughs) sandhills the entire way. And then Lincoln. Anyway, He was the Poet Laureate from 2004 to 2006. He won the Pulitzer Prize in 2005, smack in the middle of his laureateship, so he was really knocking it out of the park in the early 2000s, not unlike tennis legend Roger Federer. He won it for Delights and Shadows, um, and he was part of, in the 60s and 70s, the Midwest Poetry Renaissance, uh, which was exactly what it sounds like. A lot of writers from the Midwest were having... Um, sort of breakthroughs and we're having their work be considered more seriously and uh, move a little bit away from 
you know, the traditional, I hate to use this term, but it somewhat applies the coastal elites or the gatekeepers of uh, what is like serious poetry or what poetry merited consideration. This was kind of a, a mini rupturing of that, that Kuzer has continued to be a part of because he, as I said, he really does write from a strong sense of place. And that place very much for him is the Midwest. Um, as I think you get a flavor of in this poem. So this is Abandoned Farmhouse by Ted Kuzer. He was a big man, says the size of his shoes on a pile of broken dishes by the house. A tall man too, says the length of the bed in an upstairs room. And a good God-fearing man, says the Bible with a broken back on the floor below the window, dusty with sun. But not a man for farming say the fields, cluttered with boulders, and the leaky barn. A woman lived with him, says the bedroom wall, papered with lilacs, and the kitchen shelves, covered with oilcloth. And they had a child, says the sandbox, made from a tractor tire. Money was scarce, say the jars of plum preserves and canned tomatoes, sealed in the cellar hole. And the winter's cold, say the rags in the window frames. It was lonely here, says the narrow country road. Something went wrong, says the empty house in the weed-choked yard. Stones in the field say he was not a farmer. The still-sealed jars in the cellar say she left in a nervous haste. And the child? Its toys are strewn in the yard, like branches after a storm. A rubber cow a rusty tractor with a broken plow, a doll in overalls. Something went wrong, they say. So this is a creepy one. Yeah, it really starts out somewhere and then it kind of goes somewhere else. You know what I mean? <laughs> I catch your drift, my amigo. <laughs> I, like, my, I like what you're hitting me with. That's my sharp analytical commentary for you. Doesn't These are the insights I come to you for. <laughs> I'm telling you. Um, but that actually is, I think, something pretty important. And as we do, we sort of go through the narrative of the poem. And this one, it's pretty straightforward, but it's basically an assessment of an abandoned house, kind of taking stock of, I almost want to call it evidence, but just taking stock of what's there to paint a picture of what might have happened there or why it is abandoned almost. So it starts off describing the people who were there and the things that point to their having been there. So we learn that there is a man, a woman, and a child. We see evidence of having been there and they clearly are not there. And so some of what this poem is doing is trying to fill in the gaps between the knowledge that they were there and the fact that it looks like they left pretty quickly. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. I think it's pretty widely anthologized, this poem. Um, and I feel like it's a very teachable one in that one of the big, something that we've talked about a lot is the use of image and objects and details to tell a story um, through like the sort of connotations or the things that they imply. Um, and this is a poem that is kind of explicitly doing that. Um, so it's a very useful poem in that way. But um, yeah, I was curious, yeah, what, um, what drew you to this one? 
Well, it fits with a lot of stuff that I generally enjoy. Um, as I know we've discussed in relation to a couple other things, I'm a big fan of like Flannery O'Connor. I really enjoy short stories. I think this poem feels in many ways like a short story. It kind of has that um, sense to it. I don't know if I've talked about it on the podcast before, but I know that I have talked to you about it before because I bring it up all the dang time. But <laughs> the uh, the very short, very creepy Annie Prue story, 55 Miles to the Gas Pump, which is completely terrifying. I encourage all of our listeners to look it up. Um, I feel some similarities there. Uh, that one goes to a much darker place than this one does in what it explicitly tells you. I think this one in leaving room for you to write your own story about what happened is in some ways even creepier because it does leave that room for the imagination, which a lot of people who write about uh, horror, particularly horror movies, but also horror writing, talk about how important it is to have room for the audience to imagine the worst and how that can be even more frightening than showing like a monster or showing the the killer in some instances, just the, the dread and the threat that you can create a monster for yourself is is even worse. Part of what drew me to this poem is how specific it is in the picture it paints. So you get a very clear idea of who you think this family is. It's not just that there is a man, woman, and child. It's that you have a God-fearing man. You have a woman, all of the evidence for whom is found in the kitchen and the bedroom. You have a child who is playful, who has a sandbox and toys. You have this really, really traditional nuclear family. They're in a farmhouse, which is like an idyllic, classical, like middle American setting. You have all of the markers of this being a happy, you know, ruddy faced Norman Rockwell family out tilling the fields and making a go of it out in this, you know, beautiful white farmhouse. But from the very beginning, from the title, you are keyed in that something's not right because it's an abandoned farmhouse. And the only evidence you have of this family's existence is their absence. And you sit with that for two stanzas with this sort of sense of like, oh, this is kind of unsettling. There's something not quite right here. And then it just hits you at the beginning of the third stanza. Something went wrong, says the empty house in the weed choked yard. So your suspicion about the title is confirmed because it is the emptiness of the house that tells you something happened here that wasn't what should have been. And then you get to more explicitly engage with that to the point that you are left with something went wrong they say and in that they say you are both pointed back to all of the specific pieces of evidence that you've been given in some ways that they say points back to the the child's um you know toys that are in the yard but a little bit i feel like it points outward to like a gossipy town nearby where everybody talks about what went wrong out on the stebbins homestead or whatever um, and it gets to this very creepy, like, oh, it's so bad that everybody's trying to reckon with whatever went down out there, but something went wrong. So the specificity of the picture created that somehow sits easily alongside the complete lack of specificity of what disrupted that picture and the fact that it is in fact a picture that is only rendered in the negative. Um, was what really drew me in because it felt like this is a very kind of straightforward poem, but one that actually 
hinges on a lot of things going right to work. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And that's such a good point about the simultaneous specific and not specific in a certain way. The like one thing that is not specific is the thing that makes it so unsettling. Um, and it's also because of the fact that, you know, the speaker is so is able to be so specific in what they're drawing from these other things. You know, it's like he's a big man because you see his shoes, um, that they're big and that the Bible has a broken back. So it was used a lot. So he must have been a God fearing man. So you get the sense that the speaker is capable of, you know, deducing a lot from, you know, evidence or certain details. And then the fact that when it gets to this other aspect, it becomes very vague. Something went wrong. Um, that's repeated twice, you know, and you don't know what that is, um, but you know it's something bad. I think that, and the comparison to, yeah, to how horror works in that kind of unknown um element that haunts something i think is really spot on um one thing that's very interesting about this poem is that like a lot of poems maybe um use objects and details and images as i was saying to sort of suggest a story that's happening um but this poem is different in that the speaker is sort of doing that work like out loud so it's like it's not just saying the size of his shoes were big on the broken dishes and the bible you know was had a broken back you know it's not just listing objects it's it's there's this extra part that happens over and over again he was a big man says the size of his shoes so we can sort of see the speaker as um like and own his own interpreter of what's happening and so we have like both our interpretation of things and then we can interpret the way that the speaker is interpreting and the way that that i think develops the kind of the the cool way that that opens the poem up is the way that the a couple things get reinterpreted in the third stanza so um the main one is in the second stanza he says the money was scarce say the jars of plum preserves and canned tomatoes sealed in the cellar hole um so that you know sure that makes sense but then when we get to the third stanza something went wrong then we get this line the still sealed jars in the cellar say she left in a nervous haste so this isn't necessarily negating the fact that money was scarce, but the speaker, we can sort of see the speaker walking through the house and like seeing, you know, this object and that object and putting together an image. But then the, the story gets more complicated as the speaker sees more and thinks about it more. And then that kind of like doubles back and reinterprets some of those images. So the jars, no longer just stand for the fact that they were poor, but because they're still sealed, she must have 
went really quickly because you would take those with you if you had time. Um, and so that suddenly suggests something quite terrible. Um, and we can only sort of get that kind of tension um, because we're sort of being explicitly clued into the way that the speaker is interpreting things throughout. And we also get a sense of like a spectral speaker in some ways, because they just kind of float around in the house looking at all this stuff. And they seem to have access to the whole house and the outside of the house and the yard by the house. And now they're in the cellar and now they're in the bedroom and now they're in the kitchen. Like they're everywhere. And it's that in itself, I think, adds to the creep factor. Because as you were saying, it's not just that they notice the jars of plum preserves. They like go out and look at the window frames and then they come back in to look at the jars again and reassess what they're about. Like it's they're, the movement of the speaker is contained, but they go all over the place. Yeah. And the fact that it's like, you know, it's a, it's a kind of obvious part of the poem, but the fact that it's like everything is saying something like a repeated, you know, the shoes say this about it and the empty house says this, this accumulation of objects that are speaking, um, I think acquires, you know, a real ghostly element by the end. Um, even though I think what's what's cool about the poem is that it, it actually takes a, a while to develop. Um, and so you get a hint. I mean, the in the second line, you get a good hint that that the shoes are on a pile of broken dishes so that there's you know, there's something wrong. And, you, and as you were saying, the title is abandoned farmhouse. But for the most part, we're just getting like the size of the man, you know, it's pretty like banal details for a while. And so we don't notice, or we start to accept that the, the saying of the objects, I think is, is part of it. So that when it, when it comes in or when it keeps going at the end and then things start to get more um, desolate or scary or something, um, I think it can be kind of, the, it, it's surprising, but that you realize that it's been happening the whole time. Definitely. One question I had, because the other part, similar to the jars, that kind of doubles back, but I wasn't quite sure how to read it, is the first part um, in the first stanza, but not a man for farming, say the fields cluttered with boulders and the leaky barn. So there I was kind of getting a sense it's like he farmed but was not a great farmer or something. I wasn't exactly sure. But then at the end, in the last stanza, stones in the fields say he was not a farmer. Um, and this distinction between not a man for farming and he was not a farmer seems significant, especially because it's only one of two details, I think, that sort of come back in a, in a new way. Um, but I was wondering how you were reading that aspect of it. That struck me as well when I read through it. And I'm not entirely sure I have a satisfactory uh, handle on it myself. Um, on the basic level, I guess it sort of moves from being about describing him to being about describing or trying to get at whatever went wrong from the first stanza where it's describing 
the inhabitants to moving into this last stanza where we're kind of investigating evidence for something that's not right. So like, if he's not a farmer and he's in a farmhouse, that right there is wrong. Like he bought all this land and he's not using it, I guess. So how's that working financially? That probably puts a strain on the familial relationship. Who knows what happens then, you know? Um, but in a more insidious way, it kind of makes you wonder, well, why is he seeking out a farmhouse if he's not a farmer? So does he want privacy for some reason? There's a cellar. That's creepy. There's jars and preserved stuff down there. His wife, she's nervous and she has to leave really quickly. What's going on here? Um, so I think that little movement stones in the field say he was not a farmer the still sealed jars in the cellar say she left in a nervous haste puts this guy's not a farmer he's in a farmhouse there is a cellar and his wife had to run away right together in one sentence and so again it's an instance similar to how a lot of the information is revealed of the poem of like well here's three pieces of information what do you think's going on I feel like the poem is implicitly asking you through the speaker's deductions about what's going on there. Well, what do you make of all this? I, I feel that coming from the poem at many instances growing stronger as it goes along, which is like, and so what are you thinking now? And uh, now what do you think is going on? And like, as you get each piece of information, you are encouraged to make more deductions of your own as a reader. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, and makes a lot of sense. And that, that speaks to the the part at the in the last stanza where it's like, and the child question mark. It's like, there's a little like, don't think I forgot about the child, or like there's a little moment of acknowledgement that there's sort of a reader there, like, mm -hmm. you know, um, so I, I think that's really right. Um, yeah, or like my initial deduction does not account for this. Hmm. Well, it's toys are everywhere, so like something went wrong yeah i know it's <laughs> it's really it's sort of interesting uh it's yeah it's bizarre um i love the description of the toys strewn like branches after a storm um that's a great simile that sort of says a lot about what the speaker thinks has gone on um and that's also probably the most because part of me was thinking, it's like, is this a reliable narrator? Like, we do we know, do we believe what the speaker is saying, I guess? And we're not, like, given that much that would suggest we shouldn't. Um, but I was like, that piece of evidence, the toys strewn in the yard, seemed like the strongest case that something quite bad had happened um, that, yeah, that you would either, you have to leave so fast with your kid, you know, that you can't take your toys um, or that something happened to the kid or, you know, I don't know. It's, it's uh, eerie for sure. Definitely. Uh, I love that you bring up the question of how reliable is the narrator? Cause on some level, I don't know if you've ever played a game like this, but it can be fun if you're like people watching a coffee shop or something and just make up stories about all the people who walk by or who are like also there. Yeah. Um, 
And I feel like on some level, maybe that's just what's going on here. Like this is somebody who happened upon an abandoned farmhouse and they're just making stuff up. Like who says that's his Bible? Maybe it was there when he bought the house. Who says like maybe some rando left their boots on some dishes. Like it's not, you're creating this rich fiction, my friend, but it's not like you could just be talking out of your patoot. So (laughs) (laughs) So my grandma called butts. (laughs) this could all just be conjecture and we're like along for the ride and what do we make of this as our own kind of thing um i do really like that the house itself is basically never described but i feel like i have a very clear picture of it like the first thing i form even before i start populating this scene because of the title abandoned farmhouse that's such an easy image to conjure, I think, for most readers. Like, I think a lot of people have some idea of what an abandoned farmhouse would look like to them. Even if you haven't seen one in person, you've probably seen like a picture of one in a kid's book or in some movie, you know? Yeah. So I think that is something that's interesting because it's almost like you're adding texture to this implied image that is never explicitly stated. So it's another level of like just filling in the blanks either you as the reader or the speaker, like just filling in information to something that's never actually explicitly there. Yeah, I think that's really true. The, it either tells us something about the family or the people that live there, but even if it isn't reliably that, it's telling us something about the speaker. And, you know, the speaker is like familiar with this kind of setting and like not just familiar with like knows what it looks like but but knows like what rural life is like and knows what like um you know i mean i i think this i read this something about ted kuzer generally but it's very hard this is like the most general um hot take ever but like the farming industry is very hard and it's not well uh i don't know the government and society doesn't respect farmers in terms of money or other things i think this is a this is a bad hot take but at any rate (laughs) other than farming being one of the most highly subsidized industries in the united states yeah well, but it's still, it's just hard to be, to make a profit as a farmer. Yeah, and especially yes. since like big farming companies have taken over and like the role of mechanized, I don't know, automation or whatever. Um, the industry has changed a lot so that. Um, and the advent of an era of greater free trade as well has been challenging in terms of how much is getting imported from other countries. Yeah. No, I, I, I think your point is actually well taken. I'm just being a bit <laughs> difficult over here. No, it's um, good. I mean, I need to be more precise. Um, nah, nah, nah. You good. But I think that whole climate, um, the speaker is familiar with. And so I think that they are coming into this place with, with a kind of understanding of like, you know, what, because even without the creepy part at the end, this is a difficult life, you know, um, 
the money was scarce, the winters was cold, say the rags and the window frames, it was lonely here, says the narrow country road. You know, there's a sense of, you know, a tough and isolating atmosphere that already pervades the poem, even if we're just thinking about him as a good God-fearing man and not something more sinister. Um, but, and then I think that knowledge, either, either if it's like specific to the town or the community that this is a part of, or just more generally knowledge about what these kinds of communities can be like, the sort of something went wrong. It's like the speaker knows to go there in their mind, whether or not this is true in this specific case, if that makes sense. That I think that's a really, really good point. Um, I like that a lot. And I think it's, it's true. There's a sense of like familiarity and understanding in the, in the writing. And I think that's something that I really respond to in this poem, which is that it really does a great job throughout it of invoking a very specific kind of feeling. And I feel like you can get that even without the knowledge that the speaker clearly has of like the more uh, of the intricacies of what this life is really like. But, you know, you get because of how the poem is crafted, you get a good sense of like how you're supposed to feel at each turn within it. Like the second stanza ends, it was lonely here, says the narrow country road. The next stanza starts off with something went wrong, says the empty house. So like, here's this hard, cold, lonely life. I mean, yeah, something probably did go wrong. That seems logical. You get sort of uh, like shining type vibes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just like this stir crazy weird house in the middle of nowhere with this these three people cooped up. Like, yeah, something something could go wrong under those circumstances. I also was noticing when you were reading it, especially that the sounds in the end are like particularly strong. Um, the the toys are strewn in the yard like branches after a storm. Um, there's some T's and some S's and the, the, the R's like strewn yard branches storm, the, the R beginning and the R ending. Um, and then a rubber cow, a rusty tractor with a broken plow. There's like a perfect rhyme that emerges right at the end um, with cow and plow. Um, and the, the R of rubber continues with rusty tractor. Um, and then a doll in overalls, you get this kind of R sound all um, that that has a tight assonance. Um, so, and and for the most part, the and I think Kuzer is is known for this um, in a similar way to Mary Oliver has is a kind of popular poet for people who don't necessarily read poetry, or at least that's the way that they're often talked about. Um, and, and one of their similarities is their sort of accessible language. Um, and the, 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 the language isn't, in contrast to Ray Armantrout, it's not drawing attention to itself. 
right? It's it's giving you the the Im it's privileging the image and the narrative over the language itself, um, and you know it's detailed and it's 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 rhythmically tight, but it's just tight in a way that it it sounds like it just makes sense and you can see it and hear it, not like oh what a beautiful phrase, if that makes sense. And then I think it's to the poem's credit that at the end when there is when we are building toward this more um, sinister turn, that the sound, I feel like that is an intentional modulation or change of, of the, the music, um, that it becomes a little more dense sonically, um, that we kind of tune in more because it's, it's not something that had been there before. Um, so I thought that was a really sort of subtly great uh, feature of the poem. Definitely. I think it's a really good point that when someone doesn't do something so often when they do it as, you know, particularly a rubber cow, a rusty tractor with a broken plow, like that one really sticks out. And the doll in overalls, as you mentioned, it does point to like, Hey, something important's happening here. I would like you to know, take a look, check it out. Here it <laughs> is. Um, and there is another little, I mean, this isn't a sound turn, but it's a little bit of a language turn where the last sentence not the last line but the last sentence is something went wrong they say and this is the first time that a stated piece of information is not followed up with definitive evidence every time something went wrong says the empty house in the weed choked yard stones in the field say he was not a farmer so even when it's like statement first concrete evidence follows and here at the end where we've already established that which is not explicitly stated is that which is like creepy and scary. You get a definitive statement and then they say, and that they could point back to all the evidence that's already been presented, but it can also just kind of open up the space at the end of the poem for like a bigger creep factor. Yeah, I think that's really right. Um, and weed choked yard is also a great phrase and the use of choked Mm -hmm. is a, I think before the poem had resisted kinds of like, like it's say the fields cluttered with boulders and the leaky barn. That gives you a sense of what it looks like, but the connotations of clutter and leaky are not as sort of loaded as choked, like weed choked yard. That's like getting a lot more intense with the how the, the thing feels. Um, so I think that's also really happening pretty strongly in the end. Definitely. Um, and just the, like branches after a storm, there's, um, actually, I think no other similes or metaphors. I think you're right. That's very and, interesting. Yeah. Um, oh, look at that. So one like quote unquote poetic technique that the poem is doing throughout is what you could call personification. Um, so all the objects are saying this thing, they're given this sort of person attribute. But a lot of poetic techniques are kind of withheld from the first two stanzas of the poem and they kind of emerge at the end you know, strong sounds and um, intense imagery, uh, simile, 
Um, and and as you were pointing out, that that more ambiguous ending that sort of breaks from the pattern. Um, those are all working to signal um, in the form what what's changing in the content. I think definitely. I like that a lot. That's a really good point. Should we read it again? I think so. Um, yeah, the only other thing I have is that uh, mainly because it's like creepy and farmhouse related. It reminds me both of the uh, Tom Waits song Murder in the Red Barn and probably more like out of literary obligation because I've read this book. I couldn't not think of it is uh, In Cold Blood, which is about murders in farmhouses and like things going wrong in farmhouses. So that wasn't really anything specific, but just in terms of the context that a reader could bring to this poem, if you have, I mean, probably I haven't seen this movie, but I'm led to believe something like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre takes place in like kind of an abandoned looking rural location. Like I think they show up a lot in horror cinema, something I'm not well versed in, but which I would imagine would give you like a lot of visual context or like extra textual information that you would bring to a poem like this. That would be pretty easy to have garnered through just like cultural osmosis. Yeah, absolutely. Because um, there's a lot of like abandoned house horror movies. Yeah, a lot of the the phrase is always cabot in the woods, but um, farmhouse in the fields is, I think, probably also frequently employed. You just need a big space that seems beautiful but is very remote. <laughs> yeah, a remote space where teens can go <laughs> to engage in activities that are not socially acceptable so that they can get killed. Yep. The morality of horror. Okay. <laughs> That's a different podcast. It strikes me that it almost has like the cadence of a children's book in places. Yeah, it does. It's weird. It's like a weird twisted nursery rhyme kind of thing. Yeah. Not rhyming, obviously, but it's like Something. He was a big man, says the size of his shoes on a pile of broken dishes by the house. A tall man, too, says the length of the bed in an upstairs <laughs> room. Like, there's a very weird, jaunty reading to be done of this that does, like, take each one of these lines and put it on a different page. Yeah. And you just have, like, a discrete image for each of them. That's interesting. Yeah. And the the structure, it's a parallel structure, like, the for a lot of it, like, he's a da-da-da says the da 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 he's a mm. da 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 it says the da 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 like whatever the rhythm is in a children's book it's like always repeated like a million mm -hmm. times um yeah <laughs> no that's a really good point i hadn't thought of that again adding to the creep factor yes creepy nursery rhymes so yeah let's uh let's read it again let's read it again all right, Abandoned Farmhouse by Ted Kuzer. He was a big man, says the size of his shoes on a pile of broken dishes by the house. A tall man, too, says the length of the bed in an upstairs room. And a good God-fearing man, says the Bible with a broken back on the floor below the window, dusty with sun. But not a man for farming, say the fields, cluttered with boulders and the leaky barn. A woman lived with him, says the bedroom wall, 
papered with lilacs and the kitchen shelves covered with oil cloth. And they had a child, says the sandbox, made from a tractor tire. Money was scarce, say the jars of plum preserves and canned tomatoes sealed in the cellar hole. And the winter's cold, say the rags in the window frames. It was lonely here, says the narrow country road. Something went wrong, says the empty house in the weed-choked yard. Stones in the field say he was not a farmer. The still-sealed jars in the cellar say she left in a nervous haste. And the child? Its toys are strewn in the yard, like branches after a storm. A rubber cow. A rusty tractor with a broken plow. A doll in overalls. Something went wrong, they say. Hey everybody, this is Jack again. Thank you so much for listening. This is the part of the show where we tell you all the different ways you can get in touch with us because we love to hear from you. If you have ideas for future episodes, comments on this or any of our past episodes, different readings of poems than the ones that we offered, we want to hear it. Uh, the fastest and easiest way to get in touch with us is on Twitter. The show is at Close Talking. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn and Connor is at Hot Sauce Boxed. You can also get in touch with us via email if you have lengthier thoughts. Our email address is closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com. We are also on Facebook at facebook.com slash close talking. And of course, the very best way to stay up to date on the latest close talking happenings is to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Uh, We're also available, in addition to iTunes, on Stitcher and SoundCloud. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again next time.